choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Hey everyone, welcome to Forecast Roundtable. This is part two of our series on the 2020 Global Defense Spending Annual Snapshot. For this part of the podcast series, we will be speaking with Sean McDougall, the analyst for North America, that is the United States and Canada. Sean, what are some of the drivers behind uh, recent spending growth in the U.S.? So a lot of the U.S. funding lately has been going into readiness, maintenance, um, in particular aircraft, uh, availability rates, ship depot maintenance, making sure equipment is updated, ready to go. It's been an issue both with old legacy aircraft and even newer aircraft, just making sure that, you know, maintenance can be kept up to, to keep everything going. Right. And also even just training, uh, making sure the personnel are, you know, ready to, to deploy. Right. It's really expensive. People are expensive. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah. Personnel, it, they're very costly, um, especially when you add in things like, you know, medical care and everything like that. Um, it, it gets to, to be a lot. And then operation and maintenance uh, requirements, really absorb a lot of the budget. Um, and also lately acquisition is, uh, it's always a, a big focus, but especially now the U.S. focusing on their uh, potential peer conflict, uh, you know, China and Russia um, being big, big headlines uh, lately. Right. So that's for the U.S. That's driving everything from hypersonic missiles, uh, also defense against hypersonic missiles because you have the back and forth of that. Um, missile defense, long-range strike in contested environments, that, that's partially the hypersonics, but also bombers, um, even long-range artillery, anti-ship weapons, uh, cyber warfare, just to name a few. Right, and this is where companies need to shift their focus from what they've been doing for the past decade or two decades to this new peer-on-peer model. It's, it's going to be different technologies, different acquisition processes, uh, paradigm shift in, in, in the industry, basically, right? Yeah, it's 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 a sh- it's somewhat of shift. Um, it's it's really adding new capabilities because the yeah. thing with the U.S. that they always have to keep in mind is you're you're looking at a, a full spectrum force. Yeah. So despite whatever strategic shifts, you're always going to have um, you know wanting that capability for say asymmetric asymmetric conflict. Um, right. Of course. Things like that. Yeah. Um, but it, it opens up new opportunities certainly for uh, advanced next gen weapons. Right. Um, and it's it's. Some areas are, are pretty exciting in terms of, uh, of hypersonics, directed energy. Right. There's a, a lot of cool stuff out there. Um, some of it is still, you know, years away in terms of fielding or deploying. Right. Uh, especially something like directed energy, where they've always been sort of a, a decade out of fielding, it seems. Uh, right. It's, it's always like it's always on the horizon, uh, almost quite there, uh, not quite there. There, you know, has there are test lasers going out on on right. navy ships and the army has vehicles and air, it's, it's air, getting aircraft. all of that it's it's uh like you said scaling it's it's getting all of that into a a compact unit that can fit on uh, a, even a smaller vehicle or or an airplane or or some sort of naval vessel um that also doesn't create an excessive amount of heat and that that's very difficult to do yeah exactly uh, how much energy it takes to power and you know heat dissipation right uh, impacting the size of it and so the size allows you dictates what kind of platforms you can put it on and the, the smaller right. more powerful you can make it you know if you can get a 
end up having a, a small UAV with a, a super powerful laser. Like that's that's right. great. And you but spend it, billions of dollars on it, and then Africa makes a fog machine, and it doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. There are a lot of issues like that with directed energy that yeah. you know throw it into play, and that's you know in in past uh, airborne laser was an old program, but that the the U.S. was trying to use for missile defense and. Right. But it turns out, you know, at, even at atmospheric conditions can just make it really hard. So, yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of factors to, to take into play. There are. So there's a lot of RDT&E going on, um, and eventually the, those programs will result in uh, new equipment and, and new platforms. Yeah, so in, in the last couple of years especially, we've seen a big jump in research and development funding right. uh, to, to start developing these, you know, next-gen weapons. Right. And so eventually, assuming those programs come to fruition, then, yeah, you'll, you'll see a transition into procurement for uh, those types of systems. Right. And uh, for the U.S., uh, even going broader than just individual programs, uh, there's a lot of, been a lot of force adjustments that have been driving spending. Right. Uh, or at least planned future spending. So the, the Navy, for one, is looking to grow their force, the, the fleet, the battle fleet, to 355 ships, right. up from about 293 today. Right. Um, they're also doing experimentation with unmanned vessels, which right now the unmanned vessels don't count towards that 355 number. Um, they, mm, they that's made, important for, for some of these war gamers to know if that doesn't count towards that number. It is, because yeah. if you said, okay, well, the, the unmanned vessels now count towards that figure, well, it wouldn't be as difficult to reach a force of 355. Right. Um, but the Navy doesn't even really know how yet, how they want to use those unmanned vessels yet or right. exactly what they'll be. There's, there's talk they could be weapons platforms, yeah. they could be sensor platforms. Um, do they have, are they fully autonomous? Are they partially manned? Right. Um, you know, what, what happens when you're not using them? Uh, in, sort of in a, in a broad perspective, they're seen as a good asset in uh, an advanced war. Right. So something where if you're if you're talking about China, you could have uh, a large unmanned vessel with uh, you know say a vertical launch system, and and so that'll have uh, increase your missile capacity. Right. But if you're in peacetime, well, what what's the unmanned vessel doing? Um, so there there's questions about do we have optionally manned vessels, where maybe a, a small vessel with you know a small crew that can right. work with other countries during peacetime, uh, you know military cooperation, and then and then maybe it becomes a, a sensor or payload or missile payload platform in an actual conflict. Right. So the, all that stuff is is kind of up in the air and being decided. And then for the Air Force is also looking to grow. They they have a goal of. Um, back in 2008, they said they wanted 386 aircraft squadrons, up from about 312 at the time. So right. you're talking almost 25% growth. Um, and so they're wanting those additional assets, again, sort of for if you're facing a, a peer adversary, if you're in an advanced conflict, you're going to need more uh, uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets. You're right. going to need more tankers to keep your combat aircraft up in the air, uh, they want more combat search and rescue aircraft because right. if you have personnel down over enemy lines, you you want to be prepared for that situation. Hopefully, and yeah. then and yeah, and then increasing, um, adding a few fighter squadrons, and then of course the the whole in, in, a growing outlook on space assets. Um, right, that, that's, I've definitely thought that's very important. I know people joked about the space force, um, but I've always thought. We, we need to have more protection up in space. A, a lot of 
our military, if not all of it, is based upon communications, and a lot of the communications is based on satellites. Yeah. Um, so you need to protect those satellites, obviously, thus the whole Space Force. Absolutely. I mean, there's debates can certainly be had about the best way to do it, whether it's, you know, the, the, whether it was the Space Force or Space Command and, and how these organizations interact. Right. But in the end, yeah, space is a, a increasingly important domain. Right. And like I said, protecting those assets um, is increasingly important. Um, I still remember uh, years ago when China sort of out of the blue launched an anti-satellite uh, missile and yeah. it sort of caught everyone off guard. Oh. And, and, yeah. And it sort of got everyone thinking, you know, even more so like, all right, how do we protect these assets? And so in terms of space, you have, that's where you're sort of weighing single large advanced satellites versus a lot of smaller more inexpensive satellites. Um, so if you distribute your capability over a large number of small satellites, it's right. harder to take them out. Yeah. But either, either way, it's, it's space is, is, is extremely important. Right. And like you said about communications, if you're in a conflict with uh, an anyone, but especially an advanced adversary, and you lose communications, that, that's a big problem. Which, which you will. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody will lose communications. And that's and that's going to be one of the biggest targets. So if if uh if you're with a conflict with a country that does have some sort of anti-satellite capability, yeah. that's going to be one of the first things to knock out is you you knock out that oh, yeah. communication network and things grind to a halt. So it's uh, certainly a big factor. Um back on the ground, uh the army is doing their own changes um in terms of force adjustments. Um they're kind of trying to push a little bit more of a focus on armor. So they're, they're converting a couple of brigades. Uh, they're a striker brigade converting into an armor brigade with tanks and then an infantry, infantry brigade converting into a striker brigade, basically just having a, a little bit more armor uh, ready to go. That always helps. Yeah. More yeah, armor, know. bigger guns. Yeah. Makes you less maneuverable, but yeah, it's yeah. good to have. And yeah, it, it, weight's always been an issue, um, and... You know, Army right now is developing, um, you know, next generation combat vehicle. They're looking at robotic combat vehicles, but weight is always a factor. And they, yeah. they, they've canceled programs in the past because they were too heavy uh, yeah. in terms of vehicles. And so it, it really is trying to balance mobility and firepower. You keep um, mentioning robotics, autonomous systems, the UAVs. Um, this is obviously a, a big thing. We've I mean, mentioned it a number of times. Um, it's uh, I, I know this is part of a big part of the RDT and E right now, like you've mentioned, um, and and it seems like it's not only for specific programs, but in general, pretty much everything that's being researched right now and that will eventually be procured is going to involve some sort of robotics or artificial intelligence, um, cybersecurity. It's going to involve these in some way, whether it's part of the process of building them or actually part of the platform itself. Yeah, because when, when you talk about weapon systems, one of the big things is network integration. Right. And, and so if you're, it could be anything from a missile defense system that needs to communicate with other missile defense sensors so that they can tag team, um, you know, aircraft, ground vehicles, troops, everything is networked. It's it's the right. Internet of Things concept where yeah. everything's got a computer chip in it. Yeah. And so that makes things like cyber security and cyber warfare um increasingly important yeah. um, both in terms of defense and offense. So you want to make sure yeah. that all your systems are protected from uh, enemy infiltration because kind of like with the communications, uh, if you know, if you have a cyber attack that can disrupt your network, right. again, you're, you're, you're 
that's really going to take uh, grind it to a halt. And so that, for the war gamers out there, this is a real thing. It's yeah. not fake. Uh, <laughs> it's not something that's in movies. If you're war gaming, you actually need to take these things into account. You need to listen to Sean. He's a professional. <laughs> take this into account. Okay, go on. And the, and the, the <laughs> hard thing with, with cyber, in a way, is it's still sort of a gray area in terms of right. what, how does a cyber attack fit on the scale of um, you know, military escalation. Because yeah. like right now, um, there, there's cyber attacks going on all the time. Yeah. But they don't you know, lead to war. So, right, but, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> but, um, but if you are in a conflict, well, then those cyber attacks uh, have a much bigger impact because then yeah. you're talking about taking down infrastructure that's actively engaged in combat. And if oh, you're yeah. against an advanced adversary, that's something you really need to take into, into account. Yeah. You have to get back to... Once everybody's taken out, all their electronic capabilities are taken out. It's back to uh, to old school warfare. I guess. Yeah, yeah. So now, now we're all just throwing <laughs> rocks over over yeah. walls, and <laughs> those bullets come in handy. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's the it's the the fog of war. It's yeah. you know, you can have all these advanced you know ISR assets and you know little drone pocket drones to see where the enemy is, but then if they if they jam those, then you're back to you know manually scouting and. Yeah. So it's it's a com- it's always complicated. Yeah. Um and so we have all of these these new technologies, uh we have these new priorities. There there's a shift on on where we're going and and the US um budget is is shifting those priorities. Um you you mentioned that it's it's rising right now but it's going to flatten out a little bit. Um what we are spending our money on um how how are we actually going to um how are we going to pay for all these things? So the the increasing defense budgets certainly play into that, you know, with the acquisition spending uh, growing. Right. But the major services are also scouring their budgets for offsets. Uh, yeah. So they're looking at low hanging fruit that they can possibly trim from the budget right. in order to pay for these these new next gen advanced programs. So a lot of times it ends up being legacy programs yeah. that may take a hit. Um, and, but it also there's also the question of what Congress will do uh, during the budget process because right. it, it's up to Congress to ultimately fund the go- fund the military. You had mentioned the CH47 uh, program. Yeah, that, that's a program that we've talked about here at Forecast before. Um, the Army had recommended canceling a CH47 Block Two upgrade right. uh, to uh, shift funding elsewhere, but Congress uh, wasn't having it. So they, in the latest budget, they added some funding to try and keep that program going. So in future budgets, uh, we're talking tens of billions of dollars over the next four or five years that right. the uh, Army, Navy, and Air Force are looking to shift within their budget. Right. Um, Congress will go along with some of them, but others, they won't. So it's right. the next few years are going to be very interesting, especially the, the FY21 budget is coming out in February, Right. the, re- the request from the DOD. So... The services have kind of hinted that there's going to be a lot of uh, potential shifts in there. So right. it'll, it'll be interesting to take a look at that when it comes out and you see where the money is going to be going. This is a very important time to know where that money is going because it is it is shifting so dramatically, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, if you know if you're supporting legacy platforms, um, you know you're going to want to know what imp- what programs are being impacted. Yeah. And then in terms of what new opportunities there are. Um, right whether it's supporting other platforms or brand new systems coming online, 
it's it's a very dynamic market. So right. over the next few years, it's going to be really important to to have the resources to know where the money is going. This is where market intelligence comes in. Um, that that it is going to be so important. It's always important, but especially for the next few years, uh, market intelligence is going to be very important as to knowing where where you want to invest your resources. And of course, companies like Forecast International are um, that specialize in market intelligence. Um, it's going to be very important to not just trust your, your company's own market intelligence resources. Um, you, you want a third party to give you an objective idea of where that market is going. Um, you, you want to even trust multiple sources of market intelligence, right, um, right. which a lot of our customers do. They, they, they have us and they have other companies that they work with. Um, you want to have multiple sources of market intelligence to be absolute certain that if you're going to spend $100, you're going to spend $100 million over the next 10 years that is going to the right place uh, where you can capitalize on those investments. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, so well, we're talking about RDT&E. Uh, we're talking about uh, maintaining uh, equipment. Um, a lot of this is based on on peer-to-peer conflicts. This is where we're switching our, our focus. But how do the recent tensions with Iran factor into all this? Yeah, so it's a, it's a big question for the the Pentagon. It's it's a kind of question that they've had to grapple with for for years. Um, it's deciding or figuring out what conflicts are you preparing for next, and it's right. it's impossible to tell the future. So you may try to prepare for one conflict, and all of a sudden something surprises you and I, that kind of usually ends up being the case. Yeah. Um, f- in terms of today, uh, the, t- the U.S. defense strategy calls for a shift to the Pacific. Right. So it doesn't mean abandoning everywhere else, but it's the U.S. wants to uh, bolster resources in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, it's, a, it's an area of economic growth right. uh, globally, and that also leads into military growth and then opportunities for military cooperation right. and, of course, um, issues with China and, and the South China Sea um, and then uh, the U.S. trying to bolster uh, relations with um, India, right. um, recently having changed uh, Pacific Command to Indo-Pacific Command to sort Indo-Pacific of r- reflect that, that shift. Right. Um, so it's balancing that defense strategy with the fact that we still have troops fighting in the Middle East in right. multiple countries. And the issues with Iran really just highlight the complexity of that balancing act. Right. It's, it's tough. You can't be everywhere. Yeah. You, you, you can't be everywhere. The, the U.S. wants to have the ability to you know, fight on multiple fronts and have um, you know, the resources to support that. Right. But it, it's, it's trying to balance the the spending and the the capabilities and the readiness um the u.s doesn't want to be drawn out into a, a you know a war with iran there's right. there's there's no stomach for that no, but not, not in the popular opinion two decades of war and people start getting a little tired yeah yeah absolutely um so it's balancing that fact with the fact that washington also wants to limit iran's influence in the right. region so it's it's difficult um the, the U.S. is going to have to maintain, you know, some sort of presence uh, for the time being, right. um, w- while at the same time still pushing for that that Pacific shift. So it's yeah. it's still going to happen, but it's going to be a, a matter of figuring out how to split the resources to to support that. And along those lines, so what is what is the big outlook for the U.S. defense budget? Where where is it going? 
So we have seen, you know, some fairly substantial growth in recent years. Right. Um, the largest single uh, year of growth being FY18, uh, where we saw an almost ten, uh, around 10% jump. It's a big jump. And a big jump. Um, really, it was a, a two-year budget deal that essentially set a new floor for the defense budget. Right. Um, the couple of years after that, uh, 19 now into the 20 budget, uh, you know, you look at about 2 or 3% growth. Um, but... Looking at twenty FY twenty one, the budget's actually going to be flat. Now right. the, the FY twenty one budget, the top line has already been established. Um, there was a recent two year budget deal that addressed FY twenty and FY twenty one. So going from FY twenty to next year, you're looking at essentially a flat budget. You're going from on the national security level uh, seven hundred thirty eight billion to about seven hundred forty one billion. So right. v- very small increase. And if you count inflation. Then you're actually looking at a you know potential reduction in buying power. Right. And after that, it comes down to the impact of uh, deficits and possible economic shifts. Right. Um, so one thing that's been dictating U.S. defense spending for uh, the better part of a decade now was the Budget Control Act. Right. That was a deficit reduction legislation passed in 2011. Yeah. Uh, that aimed to rein in a little bit uh, both defense and non-defense spending. Yeah. Um, it, it really all it did was wreak havoc on the budget process. Yeah. Um, Congress was never happy with the budget limits. They, in, in reality, they never wanted them to go into full effect uh, as they did. They had a, a goal at the time of reaching a, an agreement to um, really establish like a long-term deficit plan. Right. But they, they, they were unable to reach an agreement. And so what that did was create these lower... Uh, spending limits yeah. that uh, force cuts to both defense and non-defense. Yeah. Uh, that legislation expires in FY21. So this upcoming budget request will be the last request impacted by right. that Budget Control Act. But even though those limits are expiring, that doesn't mean that we're going to see a surge in spending. Right. Um, we still have trillion-dollar deficits, um, that's going to put a lot of pressure on the federal budget. and That could cause a problem. Yeah, and, and in turn, the defense budget. And then while economic growth has been uh, decent in recent years, there are sort of lingering concerns of uh, economic slowdowns. Right. And that, that just further uh, exacerbates the situation because then that, that'll result in lost uh, revenues. Right. And then depending on what kind of, if any, stimulus reaction is, is needed, uh, to larger deficits. Right. So, so those factors uh, coming into play, the outlook right now for the U.S. defense budget is is kind of a fairly flat one right. uh, for, for the time being. And where do uh, overseas contingency funds fit into that? Are, do they? Are, are we still funding that? Yeah. So okay. the way the way the U.S. budget is uh, is set up, you have your base budget right. and your overseas contingency operations budget. Yeah. Um, they call it OCO for short. And that OCO budget, it, that's your war budget. It's supposed to pay for operations that you couldn't plan more than a year in advance. Right. Because um, you don't want your troops... If you have troops overseas in conflict, you don't want to be hamstrung by red tape. So, no, we don't. So that, that OCO portion of the budget is not subject to any uh, spending limits. Okay. Um, and actually, the, uh, the White House tried to use that loophole to... Um, to completely bypass the Budget Control Act uh, with this past budget, 
Um, and and it's it's been used before as loophole uh, spending yeah, to it's to a bad way to go about things in my mind. It's 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 hard. I mean, it makes it hard for planners um, because there's no guarantee of it going through. And yeah. in in this case, it it didn't go through the way it was structured. Um, the White House did end up getting a lot of that money, but the but Congress had to adjust the caps in order to yeah. do it. Um, but you we we still do have the OCO budget. Um, and it's it's still it's around seventy billion dollars, yeah. Um, which is a lot of money. Yeah, um, it's more than I have. Yeah, oh yeah, just a little bit. Five billion or two. <laughs> um, now it's in a way it still is sort of a slush fund because maybe only a third to a half of that is actually paying for contingencies. Right. So a lot of it is uh, for systems or processes or you know, equipment or troops that maybe were new when we first went into Iraq and Afghanistan, but have now become an ingrained part of the military that even right. if we left the Middle East, they would still be there. Yeah. Um, they, they call those enduring costs. Right. So these are things that if we weren't at war, we'd still be paying for them. Right. But they're still paying for them in the war budget. I see. So there, okay. there's, there's been a, a lot of talk in recent years about trying to move that money back into the base budget yeah. where it essentially belongs. But those spending limits have made it impossible to do that. Um, so it's possible with the Budget Control Act ending, maybe you'll you'll just see uh, a better distribution of the base budget and the war budget. And for an accounting nerd like me, it's yeah. like it's exciting. But uh, yeah. in terms of real world practices, it's really it tells you uh, a truer it gives you a truer cost of wartime operations. Right. Right now, it's it's hard to look at the war budget and say here's how much the wars are costing. Because a lot of that right. is, is just enduring costs. This is important um, stuff to know if you're a, a contractor uh, trying to make some money through the, the military or trying to retain your contracts and um, through the military. Some of these uh, these these funding nuances are uh, are important to to know. Yeah, and and one of the one for in terms of budget planners, if if you're a company or a, or a contractor, um, um, one of the gr things about merging that war funding into the base budget is it, it gives you a better view of the outlook for the funding because yeah. the, the DOD doesn't forecast their war budget. Yeah. Um, they do that one year at a time, yeah. whereas normally they forecast five years out. Yeah. So the more money you can forecast five years out, the better. Yeah. And, of course, at Forca at Forecast International, where we are, we, we track all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, we have our databases and our reports um, so it gives her, gives us a better view into the budget and so that we can make, you know, better predictions and get a better idea of where all the dollars are going. Yeah. Um, and in a very complicated bureaucracy, the, the U S military being one of the biggest, uh, you know, bureaucracies in the world and the, the U S government being one of the biggest, most complex bureaucracies. Um, and then we moved to Canada, which is a smaller but probably equally or more complex <laughs> bureaucracy than the U.S. Yeah, they they certainly have their issues uh, in terms of uh, budget planning and especially acquisition, military acquisition. Um, just it's a it's a complex process there, and so one of the issues Canada has been facing is trying to um, enact defense spending growth plans that can actually come to fruition. Right. So th they've had a, a history of sort of failing to meet defense growth targets. Um, under the, the previous government of Stephen Harper, um, that was when the global recession hit 2008, 2009, uh, the Harper government reined in federal spending across the board to, right. to hit the deficit because they're, yeah. 
they they had a surplus at the time and it um, they lost it. And so they actually did reduce spending and, and they were doing a good job of, um, you know, sh- sh- uh, shrinking the deficit. Yeah. But that impacted the military because some of those cuts were enacted on the military. Right. Um, now, currently, their face Canada has uh, slightly larger deficits. The current government under Justin Trudeau, uh, there is a plan in place to uh, grow the defense budget. It was part right. of a defense policy update that they issued a couple of years ago. Um, and it's it's a fairly um, substantial increase if they can meet it, but if, if they can meet if, it. if they can meet yeah. it, and that that's a really big if because recent budgets so far at least haven't really shown the consistent growth rates needed right. to get to the the level that they're saying, um, and even the uh, past this last spring their budget estimate showed the their 2021 budget dropping, um, so it's hard to meet those growth expectations if the budget's going down um a lot of talk very little walk yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm curious to see their their new budget estimates come out in the spring so we'll have to see if they reverse that cut in 2021 or if that remains in place and whether they alter their out-year projections so right. um, i stay tuned to forecast international um you know in our def- defense and security monitor blog uh, we'll be covering the Canadian defense market as as part of our normal coverage to kind of see, you know, if that market is going to be changing. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, if you haven't uh, subscribed to that blog or or um, got an RSS feed for that, uh, I somebody's actually just asking me there, saying, "Oh, like I want to get some news on, um, you know, the the world military markets and then world defense industry, um, international military markets." Uh, and I was racking my brain, like, you know, there, there's a lot of um, newsletters and whatnot that, I, that I've looked at in the past. Um, but how many of those are actually objective? Like, quite honestly, and I was thinking ours is probably one of the few objective blogs um, that exists. Um, it's, it's not based on our own personal opinions. It's based on our objective outlooks of the market. Yeah, I mean, we try to call it like we see it, so... Exactly. Um, and, and I think especially now, I, the more newspapers and, and journals that I read, I'm getting frustrated because I can't find a lot of objective journalism anymore. And, yeah, and yeah. Th- I think this, this is, um, I mean, we are in, in market intelligence professionals, but in terms of our blog, I think it, it, it does verge a little bit into the journalism field, um, especially in terms of that uh, objective journalism that we're, we're missing in, in the world right now yeah and, the, and and there's a lot of good coverage on there too and I especially just and since we're talking about it with everything going with, with uh, Iran um, our Middle East analyst Derek Pisacchio had some incredible coverage of the Iran crisis so if you're interested in reading more about that we have a few pieces up on that defense and security monitor blog that really go in depth about what's going on with Iran and the U.S. Um, it's, it's some really good coverage yeah check it out and continue listening to our uh, podcasts as infrequent as they are, um, I think they're great. Yeah. <laughs> we do our part. <laughs> we, we, do, we all do our part. Um, uh, but, uh, Sean, thank you for uh, talking to us today. We'll uh, see you next time. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for joining us again at Forecast Roundtable. This was part two of the series on the 2020 Global Defense Spending Annual Snapshot. Join us next time in part three as we speak with Dan Darling regarding the European and Asian international military markets.